0: Yeah, thanks, everybody, for showing up uh, for this breakout session, uh, which deals with my forthcoming book, which will be published by the Mises Institute in January, probably. It has the title Abundance, Generosity and the State, and it deals with uh, the economics of gratuitous goods. Now, what is a gratuitous good? Well, it it, it is a good that comes without uh, payment, right? Now, now, strictly speaking, there is no such thing as a gratuitous good. There are only uh, gratuitous ways of receiving Goods, right? And uh, gratuitous is ways of providing goods, right? So when our children have dinner uh, at the family table, then strictly speaking, what they're eating is not gratuitous. Right? But it's gratuitous for them. They are receiving it gratuitous. And uh, the parents are providing it gratuitously to them. But the goods, of course, they come at a cost. They come at a production cost. They come at an opportunity cost, right? So that's, of course, one of the first things that needs to be stated, which, of course, I do uh, in my book, right? But for as a shorthand, I talk about gratuitous goods with a convenient shorthand, because otherwise you would have to specify each time, well, the gratuitous ways of providing and, and receiving. Now, the, uh, to, as an introduction for the topic, I uh, wonder what, 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 what has this got to do with economics, right? In economics, we're dealing with scarce goods, and we're dealing predominantly with uh, the different ways scarce goods can be produced and uh, uh, distributed to uh, the final users and, and so on, right? So what's the relationship between this field uh, and uh, traditional economics? And uh, what are the different components of this economics of gratuitous goods? A good way to start with, uh, would be with uh, an optical uh, illusion of, of the sort that you probably have seen uh, at various places, right? So here we might wonder, is it, uh, do we have two faces looking at each other or is it a vase? Right. Of course, we, uh, my point is not to say, well, we cannot, I mean, very often this is brought up in, in classes for, uh, of, of relativists, right? say, so, well, you can, cannot know anything with certainty, but democracy is great. <laughs> which, which was one of the jokes that my, my, uh, one of my uh, great mentors, uh, Barry Smith uh, from the University of Buffalo, is, uh, is a, an English philosopher, but has been in the U.S. for 30 years or more. So he he said this uh, about his students with with a tone of desperation. He said, uh, American students are only taught two things in high school. The first thing is that you cannot know anything with certainty. And the second thing is democracy is the best. Uh, so, that's not my point. Right? It's not that you cannot know anything with certainty. Of course, uh, if, if we ever encounter a situation in the real world, we have a doubt, well, we, we take a closer look, or we look at the same object from different sides, and eventually we find, yeah, are there two faces, or is there a vase, or maybe both, right? It can, can be both, right? So, that's not my point. There's another example here, right? So, is this, uh, is this uh, a duck, or is it, is it a hare, right? Uh, right? and, and again, we'll say, yeah, I mean, looking at it, it's not quite clear. We have to look at maybe at the bottom of is something. It wouldn't look the same, right, in the case of a hare and, and, uh, of a duck. And uh, is, is this a beautiful young lady or is it um, uh, an, uh, an old witch or something like this, right? It's difficult to say just by looking at this, but it could be both, right? So there's a relationship with them. We have to look closer. In economics, sometimes we have similar things right, where there is a way of looking at uh, things that is, uh, could be superficial. If we have an exchange and we look at it super superficially, we see what, what is being exchanged are goods. Right? Quantities are floating through air and time and so on, they are changing hands. So it, and that was, of course, the way the, the first economists thought about economics. Economics was about economic goods and how they're being uh, traded and what are the production costs and, and so on until um, uh, this gentleman uh, came up and he was not actually the first one but he uh, put this idea at the center of his book that actually what's taking place in an exchange what is really the the uh, central matter is not things but human action so what is behind an exchange is an exchange of property rights property rights cannot be uh, observed right? so they need to be understood and we can understand them uh, if, if we look at uh, A human action, what human action is, what are the problems of human actions, what are the different means or are the different tools that humans use to solve their, their problems? Right? Uh, what I do in my in my book, so this is the German edition, it, it, it came out uh, two weeks ago, and uh, uh, I was again beating the the the, the, uh, the Mises Institute uh, because I, it's the second time I did it. The same thing with the ethics of money production. So I, I sent the, the, the manuscript to the Mises Institute and they eventually published it in 2008. But while they had it, I was translating it and publishing it in German in 2007. Okay, so I did it again. And, and, and uh, even the Germans said this time they were really slow for my taste, but it's, it, this is a big book, right? So this is uh, more than 560 pages. And uh, in, in English, it will be a bit short of 500. Right, all, all together with index uh, and so on, because the, the format is somewhat somewhat larger, so it, it is unfortunately a big book. My, my wife was angry at me about this, said, yeah, maybe you should write one day a book that people would like to read. <laughs> 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 not just have it on their bookshelves or something like this,. So, yeah, okay, so will be the next one, right? so have the short one, but I thought because nobody else had, had dealt with this in, in a systematic way, so why not? write a treatise about this because it's really um, uh, present everywhere uh, in the economy, wherever we look. Uh, indeed, the, the, at the origin of this, the motivation uh, came uh, in the form of a, a papal and cyclical. That's one of the letters that the Roman Catholic popes uh, send from time to time to the faithful of the Catholic Church and to all people of goodwill, as the formula is. Uh, in which they uh, write about a a problem that is uh, right at the moment, particularly uh, close to their heart. So, there it was, um, uh, charity in truth, caritas in veritate. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the, The problem was the presence of gratuitousness in economic life. So the, the Pope argued, well, um, clearly from a spiritual point of view, all things that are most fundamental for, for, for humans, uh, love, uh, faith, and hope, and so on, they're always are gratuitous, right? We we cannot choose to love somebody; right? it's not something that we really decide, but we do happen to to love somebody. We cannot choose to, to hope; either we have hope or we 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 don't, right? We cannot produce hope or something like this, right? It's really something that comes to us in more or less uh, mysterious ways, and we're happy if we are benefiting from it. So he said, well, so this is really fundamental for all uh, such, for virtues, uh, for these gifts, right? The gifts of the Holy Spirit, but uh, gratuitousness should also play a bigger role in the economy, right? It does definitely play a role in the economy with gifts and and, and similar things. And, in the economies of our day, it seems to be repressed ever more. It seems to uh, play a dwindling role. Right? And, and, well, I can cite uh, here whatever a participation in gratuitous activities, in, in, in clubs, uh, sports clubs, uh, mm-hmm. cultural associations, and so on, which membership is declining. and uh, uh, right, so the, the, these these uh, activities are, are diminishing. You say, "Well, uh, we we need to uh, think more about the causes of of the principle of gratuitousness in the economy, and uh, think about ways of letting it develop uh, freely." Right. So I have here two citations from the book, which were some sort of a starting point for me. Uh, Charity, in truth, places man before the astonishing experience of gift. Gratuitousness is present in our lives in many different forms, which often go unrecognized because of a purely consumerist and utilitarian view of life. And then at a later point, he said this, the great challenge before us is to demonstrate in thinking and behavior not only that traditional principles of social ethics, like transparency, honesty, and responsibility, cannot be ignored or attenuated, but also that in commercial relationships, the principle of gratuitousness the logic of gift as an expression of fraternity can and must find their place within normal economic activity. Now, that's a whole program, right? And, and he doesn't at all explain how this, should, this could be done and, and why and, and so on. That, that's not his business. His business is just to be a pope. and he says, Well, there's something troubling going on right now. It doesn't seem to be right. You guys go figure out what it is. Okay. Well, so that was published in 2009, and 2009 I was uh, busy with uh, various other things, and I was working on a book on capital theory and fin- financial markets and so on. So I handed this over to a doctoral student. So that's what professor youth professors usually do on such an occasion. Right? So, so I had a, a Catholic nun from, from Africa uh, <laughs> working on this topic, uh, Sister Catherine, and she, uh, so, well, she, she's been working on this uh, a couple of years and then she, uh, she defended her dissertation, uh, the economics of gratuitous goods in, in 2015. Now, she, uh, for her, it, 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 she did a fine job, right, uh, uh, researching the, the literature in, in French and in German. Her English was not very good uh, in those days. And uh, so she, she came up with a structure for, for the economics, what an economics of gratuitous goods looked like. And especially see, she distinguished between uh, uh, gifts on the one hand and um, uh, spontaneous gratuitousness. Right? on the other hand, the things that spontaneously uh, occur without having been planned or so, something like external uh, positive effects. Right, like you, you, take a shower in the morning, and then other people are benefiting it from it, even though, right? That was not really your plan that these others derive any benefit from it. You just wanted to feel clean yourself, right? Something else, but still others are benefiting from it, and uh, so that was important. Um, but it was a beginner's work, so I thought yeah, there were various things that she didn't really develop, uh, and uh, uh, most notably, uh, right, this this idea of uh, spontaneous gratuitous effects it was not very systematic and uh, she had no deep uh, grounding in um, monetary economics, so she didn't quite see the various repercussions of uh, monetary interventionism, central bank policy, and and so on, have on uh, gratuitous goods, right? We've just heard from from our friend, David Stockman, how fundamental uh, the, the Federal Reserve is for all aspects of political life, and by, by extension, uh, uh, social and economic life in, in the US and all over the Western world. So clearly, uh, one of the main uh, thesis of, of my book is that indeed monetary interventionism is a major engine of destruction as far as gratuitous goods are, are concerned. Now, what's uh, 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 the structure of the book? I'll read a, a few lines from the uh, one page or two from the preface you see where this is going. And then I'll uh, I'll talk about some of the main ideas in more detail and finally uh, present the the, the table. So we have love, friendship and life, right? Which are gratuitous. Uh, Gratuitous are also sunshine, wind, photosynthesis, the fertility of the soil. Gratuitous are the laws of nature logic, the laws of mathematics. Gratuitous is the fact that many laws of natures can be described with mathematics. Uh, that's of course a highly momentous and very useful for us, right? But why should this be so? Why should natural laws follow mathematical laws? Or laws that can be, have a mathematical di- uh, dimension, quantitative dimension, it's just, not something that we have to pay for anything, but it's just a fact, and for us, it's gratuitous. Gratuitous are good and bad examples, and I'll come back on this later, as well as the benefits of culture and civilization. Even if we look at the economic goods that human beings have to bring about at the sweat of their brows, more than often they are provided to and received from others without the slightest payment. Food and clothing for young children, assistance to the handicapped and to frail seniors, Uh, religious celebrations, birthday parties, charitable donations, inheritance, public schooling, public health care, and so forth. Now, public health care is, of course, a special case, and I'll again comment on this later. Human life is truly full of gratuitous goods. Man arrives on earth as a beggar, and as a beggar, he leaves it, he receives all initial endowments from others, Eventually, he bequeaths to others whatever he might have accumulated over many years. Gifts at the beginning, gifts at the end. In between, in the midst of all the toil and trouble, of all bargaining and exchange, a life that is also full of goods that are gratuitously provided and received. Despite the ubiquity of these goods and despite their paramount and practical importance, economists have neglected to study them systematically. To be sure, there are some economic writings on gifts, on the welfare state, on externalities, and a handful of related issues. Half a century ago, an American economist by the name of Kenneth Boulding, he was at the University of Boulder in Colorado, had outlined what a general economic theory of gratuitous goods might look like if only someone cared to hammer it out. But today, such a theory is still not there, despite the efforts of Uh, Sister Catherine, whom I've mentioned, of John Muller. And a few other uh, authors. Generosity, gifts, and unpaid for uh, abundance still stand at the gates of economics. And so the objective of my book is to bring them in. When I started to delve into the subject, my my research objective was to fill in a few annoying gaps in the literature. Uh, There had been a huge... uh, 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 a number of writings on gifts, philanthropy, and the welfare state, but other ideas issues had been disregarded. Few writings had systematically dealt with the unintentional production of gratuitous goods through for-profit for- activities, and next to none had tackled the influence of monetary interventionism and on the gift economy and on the side effects of market exchange. As I gained a deeper understanding of the field, then, it uh, dawned on me that I should have to revisit the the traditional topics relating to the gift economy uh, just as systematically as the initial research gaps. Uh, I began to realize that gratuitous goods and markets do not merely stand in a complementary relationship, but in a symbiotic one. They feed into each other. In order to understand markets, it is necessary to grasp why and how certain economic goods are transferred without payment, and inversely, it is impossible to appreciate gifts and the gratuitous side effects of human action without at least some basic knowledge of markets and the interventions of the state. And this realization has straightforward implications for economics as a scientific discipline. It has long been known that economics is not just a theory of markets. For more than a century, thanks to Ludwig von Mises and others, it has been understood as a general theory of human action. Further extensions are possible, that's my contention, by studying the principles of the gratuitous transmission and acquisition of economic goods. These principles shed new lights on the foundations of economics, on basic issues, such as leisure, savings, and capital accumulation, on the nature of legal and monetary systems, and more generally, on the workings of the market and of the state. If the principles of gratuitousness belong to the principles of economics, then it should be possible to write a treatise on economics by taking as a red thread the various ways through which goods are provided and received for free within and outside of markets. And in my book, I try to make this red thread visible. Which brings me back on the two phases and the ways, right? so you can describe what you see as, well, the opposition of two faces, because you can say, well, it's a, it's a vase. So I'm saying, well, I'm starting to describe the vase, which is complementary to, to, the, to the other things that economists have described uh, traditionally. And I'm going to study the relationships between the vase and the two faces, which we don't see on the, on the image, right? We just see a juxtaposition. So my book walks the reader through a great number of standard issues of present day microeconomics and macroeconomics. It deals with preferences, subjective value, time, leisure, property rights, ownership, monetary exchange, economic calculation, errors, profits and losses, information, learning, savings, capital accumulation, and so forth. But the red thread is different from standard economics. The focus is not on how and why goods are produced in exchange, but on the why and how goods are provided and obtained without payment, and on the consequences and limitations of this phenomenon. Okay, so we have here then three large areas that are covered. The first one is uh, donations, the second one are side effect goods, and the third one is uh, 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 interventionism. What are the consequences of interventionism for, you know, for gratuitous goods? Uh, now, more generally about uh, donations in um, uh, side-effect goods, um, so donations include, uh, of course, uh, gifts, right? uh, but more generally uh, also donations of time, right? time we spend with other people, uh, uh, time and also material resources that we um, uh, dedicate to pursuing an activity that has no material benefit for ourselves, right? but still for example, cultivating a garden, uh, uh, building a, a chapel, uh, or something like this, and right? helping the Bees Institute by, uh, by volunteering. Right? I, I will never uh, uh, f- forget uh, uh, OP Alford the Third. Is anybody here in this room who has met this gentleman? Uh, you will see him on the Mises Institute website. You, of course, you have, right? Mises the website in various uh, occasions. He was a man, Was um, I don't know what he, what he did in his uh, professional life. He might have been a pilot or something like this. He had some, some uh, uh, well, well-remunerated activity, but he had a very frugal life, so he accu- accumulated lots of savings. And then he donated his savings to the Mises Institute and but he especially, uh, as a retired person, so he was alone, and when I met him, he was in his late 70s, early 80s. He was volunteering at the, at the institute. He was running around and cleaning the the, the place and uh, reshelving books and uh, helping out serving coffee, and it's just amazing. I've never seen anything like this in, in Europe. It didn't have hadn't even occurred to me that this could be something that somebody would wish to do, but he did. It was incredibly... Uh, uh was incredible humility and uh, kindness, and he was just happy to dedicate all that he had, his money and his time, to, to this cause that he found worthy, and do, that you find worthy as well as I do, right? which is why we are here. Uh, so donations are larger than just gifts, right? It's everything that we dedicate, right? And, and then we have the side effects, uh, goods. Now, one thing that they have in common is that both of them are only possible in a world in which we have uh, something like private property rights, which is, of course, an obvious connection with uh, traditional economics. You can give only what you own, right? If I have robbed your, uh, your money and I give you <laughs> the wallet, right? I'm not really making a donation, I'm making a restitution, right? I, ca- I can only give what, I, what is mine. If there's nothing that is mine, if you are somehow co-owners of my time and of my wallet and of my bank account and so on, then whatever I give to you is not really a gift. It's something on which you had a claim anyway, right? So some limitation of uh, of any sort between mine and thine is fundamental. Otherwise, we could never distinguish between Gratuitous goods and non-gratuitous goods, onerous goods that have to be paid for and and so on, with with opportunity costs and so on. It's a fundamental point. And uh, previous writers have noticed this, uh, um, not the political romanticists who believe that somehow you can organize an economy entirely on gifts and on uh, donations and so on, but more realist uh, thinkers like uh, Thomas Aquinas and and, and others had always emphasized this, where you can give only what you own. And the same thing holds true also for the side effects uh, of the market. Um, Now, as far as donations are concerned, so we have here gifts and other signs of devotion, okay. Uh, What I do in my book is um, to uh, 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 present a theory of the economic nature of uh, donations. So I, I, I argue that donations are a category of human action. There's something that is that sets donation apart from all others, uh, uh, other categories. Now, I've been thinking about this for a very long time. And, uh, I, thi- and uh, I try various ways to, is. Well, of course, I had doubts myself, uh, whether there is any difference, right? You might say, well, whatever I'm, I'm doing, uh, uh, actually, I'm always pursuing my goals, right? So there is no difference between a uh, donation on the one hand and any for-profit activity on the other hand. I'm always pursuing my goals, so I'm always acting selfish in that sense. There's no difference between donations on the one hand and uh, uh, market activity on the other hand. Now, that argument is is, uh, fine as far as it goes, only it doesn't go very far. The first uh, uh, writer in modern times who has argued along these lines was uh, uh, the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes, he said, well, whatever man does, he does ultimately for his own benefit. And that's wrong. Of course, whatever man does, he does it in the pursuit of of objective that he himself defines, but the ultimate beneficiary is not necessarily himself. So we have here a distinction between two types of causal consequences, um, a distinction that would have been familiar to all scholars until the beginning of the 20th century Namely, uh, the distinction between uh, final causes and efficient causes. Right? So this goes back to Aristotle, He has the old, uh, uh, theory about the f- four causes that come into into play as far as any object is concerned. Right, any human action, any physical object has four causes, namely the material cause. Right, there's there's some tissue and, and stuff and so on. Um, there is um, uh, the uh, the the efficient cause that what brings it about, for example the, the work of the, the craftsman who has, who has created the thing, the, the final cause, that what the what the chair serves to accomplish, right, what's its destination. Right? And what what's the first uh, fourth? The former cause. Thank you. The former cause that, that's what the essence is, right? What is a chair? Well it is a it is an uh, uh, a piece of furniture on which I can sit myself. Let's put it this way. Right? Formal cause is often very difficult to define. Right? What is the, the form, the essence, right? But for me, uh, the, the crucial thing is right to distinguish between the efficient cause. Efficient cause is, in uh, economics, always human action. Right? But it doesn't follow therefrom that we are pursuing our own ends, right? or that we are pursuing ourselves, right? Our, uh, trying to benefit ourselves. So, uh, And here, so I was taking a lead from Mises, who in um, his theory of money and credit uh, had uh, distinguished between the various types of money according also to the finality, finality, What do they serve, right? And especially uh, um, uh, according to the different way we value uh, monetary objects. For example, uh, we have the distinction between base money on the one hand and money substitutes on the other hand So money substitutes would be, well, bank account money and so on, and and base money would be gold coins and and other stuff. And Mises says, well, in the case of money substitutes, we value them differently because uh, their value depends on the financial health of the issuer. A bank account may lose all of its value if the bank goes bankrupt. A piece of gold Cannot lose all of its value, even if the miner who has created the piece of gold will go bankrupt. The piece of gold is still there; will not lose. So, the way we value it is differently. So, I was taking my lead from this. Uh, yeah, the differences in valuation. Indeed, uh, differences in valuation. In, in the case of donations, we do not try, and very often we cannot, establish a reasonable proportion between the value of the means that we employ and the value of the ends that we pursue. Okay. Take an extreme example, we want to glorify God. Okay, so we build a church. Can the means that we employ ever be proportionate to the end that we pursue? No, they cannot, I want to express my love for a person. Uh, It's very, very important, my wife. Is any any gift that I could make, can it be proportional to her? It cannot, or to this love, it cannot, right? It's from the outset impossible. And what we do in the case of donations, is we completely disregard even this question, right? So we, um, uh, we do not even try to bring this into a reasonable proportion, which we would do in all other cases, right? If I uh, pursue, let's say, painting out of a devotion to art and to beauty and so on, I do not count the hours, I do not count the money that I put down for, for, uh, for the materials and, and so on, it's just what I sacrifice for, for this uh, activity. Whereas if I pursue uh, painting for, for pleasure, well, then, of course, there should be a good relationship right, between the pleasure that I get from it and, and the money that I put down to, to attain it. Right? And at some point, I will just stop because, well, I mean, okay, it's, it's, it's uh, pleasing, but not that much. Maybe I should have a second beer or a third one, right? Do something else. Right? So what we do in the case of donations is that this sort of valuation does not come into play. There is another sort of valuation that comes in, into play, which makes that donations are subject to economic laws. namely that we compare um, uh, that activity to all others, right? They're part of our overall budget uh, in times of ti- uh, time and, uh, and of money, right? So we are trying to balance this, this and therefore gifts need to have the right um, uh, proportion, right, to the, the individual who makes the gift. We would, be very, uh, uh, we would feel very awkward if we receive from a very poor man a very high gift, right? Because it would, be, it would not be proportional. To, to a situation, but we would accept a gift if it is proportionate right, uh, to his situation and our relationship, and, and, and so on. Right? So, there is uh, uh, an economic uh, dimension to it, but it does not concern the relationship between the means, which is the donation, and the end that is pursued. And that is of fundamental uh, importance uh, in economics, and, uh, especially for a thing like the, the market economy, because the market economy ultimately relies on donations of this sort. Uh, uh, for example, uh, that we summarize under the name uh, of uh, 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 virtues, right? Foundational virtues, For a market economy to thrive, people need to respect and to cherish uh, things like uh, the respect of truth, right? The respect for other persons and so on. And if you, and, and these things cannot be paid, right? If you, Tell the truth only to the extent that it pays, well, then, then nobody can trust you. Because they would always have to ask, well, did we pay enough? Or something like this, right? If you respect other persons only to the extent that you can turn a buck, then people will never turn their back to you. Because they might think that, well, the next second my life might might not be enough, and the, the guy will stab my back. Right? So there are certain things that we need to respect that we need to, um, uh, need to do irrespective of the benefits that we receive ourselves from them. And a market economy like, like social life in general, ultimately depends on these foundational goods that we need to cherish for their own sake. Tell the truth, respect the, the law, respect rules, uh, respect rights of others, and so on, right? And that must be given, cannot be bought. Right? So, uh, donations then are foundational for a market economy. And in general, right, so donations are important in economic life because they concern those very foundational goods that can only be created for their own sakes or for the love of others and uh, not for ourselves. And the market economy is, of course, of paramount importance because in the market economy and economic calculation, we do precisely the opposite, right? We we bring it to the balance, the, the importance of the means that we employ to the ends that we pursue. And we do not want to waste resources, and that's what a market economy is crucial for. That's what we need on the other hand. And the two work together. And You cannot have the one only as the limit, you have gratuitous goods only, but you don't go very far, you would just starve, right? so you need to have both. Right? Um, a second thesis that I developed um, uh, in the book, as far as donations are concerned, is that donations tend to grow and to decline over proportionally uh, with uh, market econ- uh, activities. And ultimately, so the, the reasons have been um, explained by, by Rothbard and, and by others. And they uh, spring, like most of uh, other economic laws, from uh, what economists call the, the uh, second law of utility. Uh, so the, uh, the law of diminishing marginal utility which says that uh, if you have an hom- homogenous, uh, a stock of homogeneous goods, right, uh, then each unit in that, in that stock has a value that is greater than the value of a stock that is slightly bigger. Right? So if I have 10 apples, then each apple in that stock of 10 has a higher value than each apple in a stock of 12 or in a stock of 15. Right? So the greater is the stock, the lower is the value of each unit. So if we have economic growth, Right? The, the point is that the value of all these things that we have created with uh, uh, for-profit activities and so on diminishes, right? And it diminishes not only relative to money; it diminishes also relative to the value of the goods that we do not also produce, right? So to activities uh, uh, such as donations and so on. And as a consequence, in a growing economy, uh, donations tend to increase relative to for-profit economies. In, in a normal economy, right? And if the economy shrinks, then donations shrink faster than the the for-profit economy. Uh, And a third point that I should like to to emphasize is the uh, fundamental importance of inheritance for the functioning of a market economy. So this concerns in particular the transmission of uh, industrial property, transmission of factors of production from one generation to the next. Ideally, like in a monarchy, you prepare your successors And you you groom them and and so you train them so that one day they can uh, step at your place and run the business uh, for you. So it may thrive and continue and so on. Ideally, that's how it is. And that presupposes, of course, that you can hand over your your, uh, property to those persons who who you think are most fit. Now what inheritance laws and similar things do is of course they diminish the incentive and our ability to do this. Sometimes they destroy it completely. If inheritance is taxed at 80 percent or 90 percent, well, forget about transmitting it to anybody. Right. So, in a market economy, um, uh, not only we have this possibility of finding the right successor, but we also get a very powerful motivation to build up wealth during our own lifetime, because we can make the gift to the next generation. Right. Whereas, if we have very strong interventionism of, of various sorts. Uh, And that can go very far. Think of education. We've talked about this today, right? You're raising the next generation there. They're all brainwashed by teachers into woke freaks. Uh, Well, Do you want to, well, save and build up wealth in order to hand it over to an idiot? No, you don't. Right? So... um, uh, in a market economy, right, we have this uh, this connection. So a lot of wealth is being built up, and is, is especially in the industrial property, right, in order to hand this over to uh, to the next generation. It's a very important uh, motivation. Now there are other motivations that come also into play. and you know, It's somewhat difficult to quantify this how important it is relative to the other motivations, securing your own uh, old age and, and so on, uh, right? But uh, it is a major motivation, uh, probably. Uh, Typically, more than fifty percent of the cases uh, for for, uh, industrialists end up in North. Okay, so these are donations. Then a few uh, remarks about side effect goods. So side effect goods are uh, very interesting because, um, in the case uh, they they are, they are um, relatively immune against a particular threat that concerns donations. Indeed, donations can be turned into ordinary payments in various ways. Right? Uh, one thing is well known in the literature is somebody well so is making a donation, but, but really he's in his heart, uh, he makes a donation only uh, superficially. And what he really wants to do is to oblige the beneficiary. Uh, so that there be some, some reciprocity. And of course, that happens all the time in, in real life. And I'm not condemning this uh, morally. i just say it's, it's a different uh, scenario. And uh, so this can happen all the time with donations. It's, it's, it's normal right, that, that this happens. And sometimes it's, everybody's aware of this. You're just playing a game of uh, dinner invitations and, and whatever, and so on. Uh, side effect goods have the advantage uh, among gratuitous goods that they are difficult and sometimes impossible to internalize in the economic calculus, uh, the self-interested calculus of, of, of an agent, right? uh, That concerns, uh, of course, pure, pure uh, side effect goods that cannot exist in other form, uh, cannot spring from any other uh, cause, but can only be uh, uh, created unintentionally. Uh, an exa- important example is friendship, right? If we, are really, if we really admire somebody who wants to be his friend, then it is because this person is a good person. He's behaving virtuously. He's doing something that we appreciate very much and that we consider to be really good. And he's doing these good things for their own sake, not because he benefits from this. So he's, for example, he's a person who would say the truth in the face of power. Right? So we would be uh, incur personal uh, danger in order to help somebody else, something of this sort. Right? These are the persons that we would like to be friends with, right? of course, there are other reasons to be friends with right there's the utilitarian friendship, right the business friendship, uh, the club friendship, and, and so on. there 's the pleasure friendship right? <laughs> I, I won 't go into this but there's a hunting hunting uh, uh, friendship and, and things like this, right So uh, different types of friendship. But uh, the, 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 the deep uh, uh, friendship based on shared virtues can only arrive as a, uh, as a spontaneous good, right? As a non-planned goods, right? Even though we say we make friends with somebody else, we do not really decide that we be friends with this other person. It's just, I mean, uh, you're made for, for, for one another because of shared virtues. Okay, and then there are uh, various other side effect goods that result from um, uh, market or non-market uh, activities. In the Austrian literature, uh, the cultural commons uh, are, are well known. And this, uh, these are things like um, uh, uh, language and uh, a monetary system, okay? A monetary system, as we have learned from Mises and from others, emerges out of self-interested activities that seek to facilitate uh, market exchange and that introduce the practice of indirect exchange in the economy. And then this practice is imitated by others and it spreads throughout the economy. And as it spreads, it makes it possible for people to uh, base their economic decision-making on uh, economic calculation, right? On the comparison between the value of means and the value of ends, right? The value of the effort that we uh, make and the, the result, the value of the result that we, that we obtain. Right. So nobody plans to, to create the monetary system per se. It results spontaneously from this activity. The same thing with language, right? If we uh, look at how our language is developed and how it thrives, it, it, uh, individually it serves individual purposes, which can be of various sorts, can be informational, can be entertaining, and so on. There' individual uh, interests that are behind it. But the consequence is the development of a standardized system of of symbols that facilitate uh, precise communication with people at different times, in different places, uh, and so on. Uh, Law, right? Karl Menger argued that uh, law is also such a cultural commons and and so on. so we have these side effects. I've listed here ownership, right? Indeed, ownership is something that obtains the desire to be an owner, that is the desire to be responsible for something, uh, is not something that we would do out of selfish considerations. If we just look at it selfishly, we would like, just like to be users, right? to reap the benefits. Right? Be able to buy and sell the good, uh, uh, preferably I would not take care of it. Right? That's, that would be the ideal. We become owners only under, the, under specific circumstances, which encourage us to be owners. And that's most, most uh, notably the case in a, in a free market economy, in which the only way to derive the benefits from material goods is to be the owner of material goods. Whereas in an interventionist economy, as we know, there are various other ways of training, uh, obtaining sometimes very material, some very important uh, material benefits, without being the owner of anything. Right? You just... Uh, taking out huge loans and investing them. So what you have bought is, well, in a way, formally, it's yours, but materially, it's not really yours. But the loan enables you to cream off the the benefit that might result from it. Uh, Examples, good examples, bad examples, are always gratuitous. Learning is not gratuitous. Learning takes time. Learning takes effort, more or less. Examples are gratuitous. The successful entrepreneur provides a gratuitous example for all people who just look at what he's doing, for competitors, employees, and so on. The unsuccessful entrepreneur also provides <laughs> gratuitous example, a gratuitous benefit for all other people who observe what he's doing. Uh, the errors of others provide gratuitous goods. To us, not only because of the example, the informational value, but also material. Think of the liquidation of a company. Clearly, I mean, the entrepreneur who goes bankrupt, unless it was a fraud from the outset, but usually if somebody goes bankrupt, well, it, he just made a very bad choice, right? very bad choices. So he will be forced to liquidate. Being forced to liquidate, he has to sell the goods that he has acquired below market, below production costs. That's a gratuitous benefit for others. Right? Of course, the market economy is full of this. Technological progress. Right? Uh, Frederick Bastia, he was probably the greatest uh, theoretician of, of gratuitous goods. And Frederick Bastia, I didn't mention him before, but I do mention him in the book uh, uh, very often. Uh, he uh, developed in the 19th century um, uh, a general uh, social theory that he called the theory of economic harmonies and of social harmonies. And in the, at the center of his thought was the idea that uh, uh, human uh, beings, uh, the uh, when they thrive, uh, that uh, the, the, the increasing abundance from which they benefit is gratuitous abundance. So, gratuitous effects are really at the center of his thought. And He said, well, in the case of technological progress, it's clear. If somebody has the first idea to create a, a wheelbarrow, nobody had the idea of creating a wheel before. Right? Before, people were carrying, let's say, the, their uh, potatoes and so on, they're carrying them with their own hands to the market. Right? So, it's very burdensome and so they have to be paid more and so on. So the first guy who invents the wheel, he can carry much more uh, to the market, right? He can sell at slightly lower cost than than the other guys, right? And then the other guys are imitating, it, and uh, uh, much more product will be uh, be carried to the market. Prices decrease even further. And eventually, the prices will reach the, the, the level approximately of what they had been before. That is, all the benefits of the invention do not go to the inventor but to the benefits to the, uh, to the consumers uh, around. Right? And that's, of course, what we have in business. If we are inventing something, we have the advantage for a while until the competition catches up. So for a while, we can have slightly higher prices and so on, but eventually, the benefits of our invention will come to, to everybody. And they're socialized as a, as a side effect, good. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the wealth effect springing from the, uh, the pricing process. If we are producing more or under uh, or better quality and so on, uh, the, the consequence is that we, well, we have a greater stock of those goods, and the only way to sell a greater stock of any good is to sell them at lower prices as compared to the, uh, the level that they, the prices had reached before. Right? Now, that's not our intention. Right? We do not, if we specialize in the production, let's say, of, of microphones, Uh, Well, we want to derive a living from the production of microphones. So we do not wish that their market value diminishes. But still, that's the objective consequence of our activity. Their value will diminish. And if we were producing them just for ourselves, I mean, that's exactly what we are looking for. We want to have a certain number of microphones and then not care about this anymore and then turn to something else. We want that the problem disappears we want that the value of the problem goes down. But if we produce to the, for the market, we don't want this. We're interested in that the market value be preserved. Now, Our action objectively contradicts that, that objective. and We are forced to make ever better deals to our customers. And that is, therefore, uh, this, this value effect that results from the competitive market process is a side effect good. So you see this, this, this goes uh, far, right? And then you can imagine, so these things cannot be corrupted, right? They cannot be integrated into, uh, into the personal calculus as in the case of donations. And right? I cannot, for example, I cannot prevent that whatever I do may ser- serve as, as an example to other people. Whereas I can make a donation first really as a free gift And then if I reconsider, yeah, I'm making only donations to people who in some way will or are able to reciprocate. In the case of donations, this is bound to happen. In the case of side effect goods, it is very unlikely that it happened. It can happen under certain circumstances which I discuss in the book, but it's usually, it's impossible. So side effects are the most robust uh, elements of the uh, gratuitous economy. And then finally, we have uh, interventionism. And uh, of course, that's uh, uh, it's a huge topic. Uh, so inter- interventionism, first of all, uh, inverses this tendency of overproportional growth and decline. Uh, so what I show in the book is that whereas in a free market economy, in a free economy, the gratuitous goods grow overproportional relative to pr- for-profit goods is when the government comes into play, and especially when monetary interventionism comes into play, we get the opposite, right? That suddenly, uh, uh, gratuitous goods grow less strongly than um, uh, for-profit goods. And the the main reason for this is the following, that because of um, monetary interventionism, um, we destroy the saturation process of capital accumulation, In a free market economy, we have have this uh, uh, saturation process working, right? The more capital we invest, the lower is the return on investment. That's the basic rule. And of course, we're trying always to find ways to get out of this uh, uh, finality, right? We're trying to, most notably through um, uh, 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 technological progress, through invention and so on, we try to create greater value. Right? But if we just blindly accumulate capital, the the return on that capital will always decline. Right? And as a consequence, at some point, uh, it becomes uninteresting to invest even more capital, unless we have a really a very bright idea how we can invest this additional capital and earn more money. Right? So as the the economic incentive to invest the capital diminishes, well, we then turn to use our savings for other things, make donations. Uh, of time and uh, material donations. So that's what we have in a, in a market economy. If the central bank comes into play, central bank allows us to do two things. Uh, first of all, we can leverage our investments, right? So even if the gross return on investment diminishes from let's say from five to 4%, it might be that thanks to leverage, our uh, return on equity increases from 10 to 20%, right? Now, that comes at risk if we are leveraging, we uh, might be uh, prone to to, to bankruptcy. But if the central bank then starts to bail us out in times of of need, then, of course, we never have to make any concessions. So then it's the exact opposite as compared to a free market economy. In a free market economy, especially wealthy person or affluent person would have particularly strong incentives to donate a lot. And in uh, interventionist economies, monet- monetary interventionism, it's especially wealthy persons have a very strong incentive to never make any donations unless they are part of, a, of an implicit exchange, which is why in the U.S. we have a whole uh, industry of foundations, right? and virtually all of them, uh, some estimations, 80 to 90 percent of all foundations that are set up in the U.S. for so-called non-profit purposes really serve as uh, uh, tax reducing uh, vehicles right, to the benefit of the, of the families and so on. And again, there's nothing wrong with this, right? so I'm not criticizing this, this practice. It's just right? we want to understand what's going on, what are the ma- motivations, what are the finalities, why are people doing what they're doing. Right? So, in an interventionist economy, you might get ever more donations, but the donations do not serve to make gifts and true donations. They serve to save money from the IRS. Uh, then of course we have uh, the whole welfare state, right, which, are, which hands out money and, and benefits and so on. These are of course false gifts, right? So I mean they're, they're not true gifts. I mean, if you rob one uh, Peter in order to uh, to benefit uh, Paul, you're not making a gift, right? You, you're sharing loot, right? So and uh, the the purpose is to to well uh, consolidate your your activity. Uh, government interventions in impoverished po- households, thereby reducing their ability to make donations. Uh, the welfare state crowds out private welfare, most notably in the form of, of the family. Uh, it fosters materialism, right, by uh, making people greedy, right, uh, allowing for, for leveraging strategies and so on. It creates the phenomenon of uh, philanthro cronyism, right? Today, this is often called philanthro capitalism Uh, It's a misnomer, so I correct the the error and say, well, that's not philanthropic capitalism, it's philanthropic And You have all the beneficiaries from huge government uh, spending and from the central bank printing press and so on. And at the end of their lives, then they have second thoughts and say, ah, oh, yeah, we also have to give back to the community. Yeah, okay. You've ripped everybody off, and then finally, yeah, you have some uh, uh, b- bad conscience and so on. And, and then simultaneously, so, so that's okay. But then simultaneously, you say, yeah, and it's not good that we have all these rich people. They also need to be taxed more. Right? That's what, what Warren Buffett and others say. Yeah, I mean, there's really no reason why somebody should be have as much money as I have. Okay, why doesn't he volunteer and just give it all away? Right? So... Yeah, and, and of course, these people then have enormous means in order to influence political decision-making process and so on. Right? There's a huge literature on this, and, but it fits in. It's philanthropocronism, right? And of course, in various ways, governments destroy uh, side-effect goods. So that's the table of contents of my, of my book, right? So in the, in the first uh, part, I deal with the, uh, the nature of gratuitous goods. Right? I, t- I talk about well, uh, gratuitous goods in general and then... Uh, the, the nature of donations, the motivations of donations, reciprocations. There's a whole theory um, coming, uh, Theory of uh, society as a form of reciprocity, uh, which is coming from the French uh, anthropologist Marcel Mauss, Mauss, right? And Mauss has argued about that there is no such thing as a gift. He wrote a, a famous book with the title, The Gift, right? <laughs> and ironically, he argues, there is no such thing as a gift. And there should not be such a thing as a gift. And the reason is that he is a commie, so he doesn't believe in private property. And he understands perfectly well that as soon as you have private property, then, of course, you can distinguish between mine and thine, and you can make it a true donation. You can go beyond what is, what is due. But he doesn't believe, and there should be no such thing as private property, and then everybody has a claim somehow in everything. Right? And then, of course, it's no longer possible to derive anything gratuitously. Uh, Second part, gratuitous goods in a free economy. I've talked about this. And part three, uh, gratuitous goods and the state. Well, I hope I've raised your your interest a little bit. I can count you among the the purchasers of this book and I hope the price will be interesting enough to entice you. Thank you very much for your attention.